When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. This is the Athletic Football Podcast Weekend Preview, welcoming in Match Week 10 of the Premier League. I'm Tim Spears, staging a one-off coup d'etat of Adam Leventhal, who's off this week. Luckily, I have an excellent cast on hand to help me out. First up, it is football scientist (laughs) and TIFO writer and presenter extraordinaire, Mr. John McKenzie. How are you, sir? Yeah, very well, thank you. You went with the word coup d'etat really early on in in your intro, which I thought was bold. Yeah, I wasn't quite sure uh, how to pronounce it at first because you know, I'm, I'm a black country lad. So, coup de tante was what was my initial. So, oh, I might, might just Google that. Oh, yeah, coup d'etat, of course. Next, we have a man who's had an angry week on social media. He started by saying that Everton's Michael Keane is just an astonishingly bad footballer. And then later in the week on Thursday morning, he was swearily bemoaning England's woeful uh, Cricket World Cup campaign. Is video specialist Ruben Pinder. Hello. What an intro that is. Um, yeah, I did tweet both of those things and I stand by both of them. <laughs> Fair enough. And finally, a preview show debutant. It's Omar Garrick. Omar, say hello and tell us who you are. Hello. Um, <laughs> um, I normally work on the news team here at The Athletic. So people like Tim, they normally have snippets what you're hearing from different clubs um, and we're the ones to kind of help you out really. So yeah, I'm here making my debut and I'm looking forward to it. And it's well-timed because you're a rare thing in the Athletic Office as we were just discussing before we started recording that you're a Man United fan. Yes, um, unfortunately so for a lot of other people out there or in the office. Um, Did you not tell from his accent? (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Brilliant. Um, So no, yeah, I'm a a season ticket holder, go up there every single time. Ah, okay, so you're proper. Proper, proper, I take it back. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I was there on Tuesday, um, which was quite emotional, obviously, because of the death of Sir Bobby. Um, may you rest in peace um, but yeah I go there all the time I'm not really looking forward to this Sunday um, for obvious reasons um, probably playing against the best team in the world really um, so yeah it's going to be an interesting one but I'm sure we'll get into that before we dive into the detail let's uh, do Adam's favourite fixture formation so we've got a one four five formation from Friday to Sunday. Friday night at 8pm, it's yeah, Crystal Palace v Spurs, who can go five points clear at the top of the English League for the first time since 1961, which was the last time they won the league. Saturday's early game is Chelsea v Brentford, London Derby at 12.30, which we're going to focus on in a bit. And then there are two Saturday 3pm matches, which are Arsenal v Sheffield United and Bournemouth v Burnley. And then at 5.30pm, it's the Champions League chasing clash. Don't laugh, John McKenzie, (laughs) uh, between Wolves and Newcastle United. And then we've got a bumper Sunday with five games. West Ham v Everton is on telly at 1pm. 
Then three games at 2pm involving sides who were in Europa League action on Thursday night. All three are at home, so it's Brighton versus Fulham, Aston Villa versus Luton and Liverpool versus Nottingham Forest. And then it's Man United versus Manchester City at 3.30pm on Sunday. And Manchester is where we'll start the show. Right, Man United v Man City, always an evocative and emotional fixture, even more so this week uh, with United mourning the passing, of course, of one of their greatest ever players, Sir Bobby Charlton. It's always a derby to look forward to. John, what's the first What's the first Manchester derby that springs to mind when you think of great fixtures from years gone by? What's the first one? Sort of like word association, if I say Manchester derby to you. So if you say Manchester one? derby, I, I always think this is a game that everyone expects Man City to win and often it feels as though Man United win. I don't know if that's good enough to answer the question, but... No, no. <laughs> uh, but it was okay. But it's, it's, the one, it's the one game, because for me, I guess the 4-3 with Owen always, yeah. always comes to mind for me. Yes, that also comes to mind for me. <laughs> <laughs> I remember one from the mid-noughties when City had just moved into what was then called the City of Manchester Stadium. and Eastlands. Um, yeah. Eastlands, yeah. In brackets. Yeah. And they, they used to beat United at, like surprisingly often back yes. then when United were um, the dominant team in the country and City were kind of rubbish. Uh, Omar, let's get a, a, an ardent Man United fans sort of take on this one as John says United's record in the derby isn't isn't horrendous compared to theirs and City's sort of league positions over the past decade but are you worried a little bit but then every time you go into a Manchester derby like you probably would do with any derby there's always that sense of optimism sense of hope um, and I think that's built on the fact that United have won their last three games in all competitions although those com- performances sorry haven't been entirely convincing but there were heroics in those periods so for example the Scott McTominay double towards the end of the Brentford game which was absolute bedlam um, similar in the Copenhagen game the big Andre Anana save which will do him the world of confidence I think in my opinion but at the same time you cannot rule out the quality that City have at the moment we did beat them last season as well 2-1 but a lot's changed since then United at that time we were talking about us being in a title race I think we were about five points off them at that period. I think it was January. Uh, but now there seems to be almost a lack of confidence at the moment within the fan base. And I think that's purely down to so many different factors, whether that be you know the poor pre-season, uh, you know, Eric Ten Hag not being able to pick or a settled start in 11. The signings, the new signings that came in the summer, not really embedding as quickly as you would have hoped for. So I think there's a lot of issues there, but at the same time, there is. We've just come off the back of three positive results, so you're hoping that there'll be a bit of confidence going into that game. You say individual moments. It does seem like that's what's getting United through at the moment, John. Um, is that is that what they're going to have to rely on if they're going to pull off a shock on Sunday? I think whenever Manchester United go through a poor period, it's represented by them losing against teams that they should probably beat. Um, which means I think when they go into these kind of derby games, everyone expects the p- poor performance to continue when actually I think there's something about that game that actually suits Manchester United. There's there's definitely the, the possibility for them to sit a little bit deeper uh, and try and hit on the break, play underdog football in a way that isn't expected of them in those other games. And I think that's why so often when we go into these games, everyone's like, well, you know, Man United playing quite badly, Man City, one of the best teams in the world. 
there can only be one outcome here and then it never really seems to follow that um that blueprint so yeah i i i think with that in mind you know there's always the possibility that that manchester united can pull off an, an upset um but at the moment it does feel as though they're relying very heavily on on these moments to sort of pull them out of uh, out of the holes they dug themselves into and um if you play it in that way against manchester city the questions are can you hold on long enough to be able to pull that kind of upset off later on in a game perhaps mm-hmm. what do you think Ruben did you give him a chance uh, no probably not um, I, I appreciate everything that these lads have just said and like there are upsets that within recent memory like they came back I mean this is going back a few years now but under Jose didn't they come back at City from 2-0 down to win 3-2 I think yep. Pogba and Smalling scored maybe um, but like last season the 6-3 wasn't great uh, from a United point of view and the injuries that they have the kind of cobbled together 11 that they're going to have to field as as Omar alludes to I just I can't really see them getting anything from it especially now that Rodri's back which you know Rodri's absence was a massive factor in their um, disappointing performance and defeat against Arsenal they're, they're just a different team with him um, so while these games kind of do suit United a bit better especially when they have to play Maguire for reasons John kind of explained tactically it allows them to be the underdog and the fans don't expect them to dominate. So they can they can approach the game a bit differently, which might suit them, but I still think they're going to lose quite comfortably. Obviously, it was an important win on Tuesday, but by all accounts, the performance, particularly for the first 70 minutes, was just was one of the worst of the season so far. What did you make of it? Yeah, I think when, when you're talking about performances and, and saying, you know, it's good to pull games out of the bag in, in dying moments, that's that only goes so far, right? There's There's it's nice to have a little bit of a, a potential shift in momentum but if that momentum doesn't then translate into an improvement in performances then you know essentially you end up in this in this sort of rut of having to pull games out out of the bag so yeah i think the the worrying thing for manchester united isn't obviously isn't at the level of the the players being able to have that level of performance in games it's the it's the it's the fact that you know, you want to make sure that the the game that they're playing is consistently good, so that you're not having to rely on those very good performances in in dying moments. So we talked about all of the reasons why there've there been these issues. There's personnel issues. There's, there's I think tactical issues as well. You're bringing in players. You've mentioned Anana for his distribution, and not only is that is that distribution that long distribution not working out right now, but the the build up has, has not been great either. And so what you've done then is taken a, a goalkeeper who's main probably main upside is the distribution aspects and then got him having to make a lot of saves in situations where you might not want him to be and so lots of lots of things like that that make Manchester United feel a little bit bitty at the moment uh, as a team and um, I think that's part and parcel of why they're in the the moment that they're in Um, and yeah when you come up against teams like Manchester City who are always going to be good uh, that's when those those uh, weaker aspects are going to be really squeezed to the limit. Uh, Quiz time throw this one to Ruben uh, when was the last time United finished above City in the Premier League oh um, either 12-13 when they won it last or 15-16 when Leicester won the league it was when they won the league in 12-13 the last season of the Fergie course as well um, which is remarkable really but the, as you sort of alluded to earlier the record in the derby isn't too bad so in the 20 games since then in the league, the split is 10 wins to City and 7 to United. So it's not as one-sided as league positions suggest. Um, I've just done a video actually on how to beat Pep Guardiola. So I've done a little bit of digging into the Pep Guardiola era uh, in terms of wins, I think, for Manchester United. I think they're on 
uh, four wins in the Pep Guardiola era. Actually, it's five. Three for Solskjaer, one for Mourinho, and one for Eric Ten Hag last season. So, um, yeah, I guess in the, in the Pep Guardiola era, it's uh, five wins in however many. That works out 14, is it? So, yeah. And how do you do it? Yeah, I, I basically came down with, with two solutions. One is the, the sort of standard solution that tends to be the way that Pep gets beaten, which is teams just sit really deep, allow them to have the ball, Really Allow suffer, Wolves a couple of weeks Sure, ago. suffer without the ball and then make sure that you're clinical in front of goal and hope that they aren't, um, which is not exactly rocket science. But uh, the, the second half of the video, I spent a bit of time thinking about teams who've been a little bit more proactive um, at trying to keep a City quiet. So I looked a little bit at what Liverpool have done under Jurgen Klopp during the Pep era. Uh, I looked at the recent Arsenal result um, which where they got the win and they looked at Inter in the Champions League final from from last season as well so there are ways that you can really try and make it harder for them to just dominate possession and and just break you down slowly uh, but even still you know as in the case of Inter you can have the best game plan in the world and you can still end up losing the game against them and when is that available for Eric Ten Hag it's actually to out now it was out ah, there you go. so there you go if, if they win at the weekend expect Eric Ten Hag to, to give me a shout out in the post-match presser. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, their derby record, yeah, is, is a slight positive, as is the form of Scott McTominay, of course, who scored three in his last two, which is more goals than in his previous 70, apparently. Um, I mean, we've seen with Scotland that this should probably be a thing that United sort of tap into a little bit. Yeah, um, I've always had a weird thing with Scott McTominay where he's clearly a talented player, but I feel like, feel like he's been misused forever at United. Like, initially when he was brought into the team by Mourinho I think it felt like he was using him as a political pawn to say buy me more midfielders and kind of playing him too deep and you know we've seen Scott McTominay playing a double pivot alongside Fred for a long time which didn't work because they both wanted to do more advanced midfielder things and neither of them wanted to be the one who collected the ball and progressed it through lines with passing and, and I mean McTominay even played in a back three for Scotland a few years ago and now he's playing in kind of like a front three but kind of narrow as a bit of a roaming 10 and a box crasher who who scores goals so clearly he's now f slowly eventually finding the role that suits him better but the problem at United is they have other more creative players who like to operate in the same area like Bruno Fernandes and Christian Eriksen and Mason Mount now so do you play him ahead of any of those players maybe in this game where you have to be a bit more defensive you could play him um, for his kind of ball carrying ability on the break because he's very athletic alongside maybe like Omar said Amrabat and Casemiro or something and then you shove Bruno, Bruno Fernandes out to the wing which might be better for the whole team as a unit but like on a consistent basis I don't see how he gets to start in that attacking midfield position given the other players that they have and kind of the fact that Bruno Fernandes is captain as well. Um, talking of midfielders possibly being misused Mason Mount, Omar, what's going on with him? Does Ten Hag know how to use him? I think the problem stemmed from the start of the season, the first game against Wolves, when Mason Mount was starting alongside Casemiro. And if anybody watched that game, Wolves went through our midfield like uh, like a bit of butter, like a bit of hot butter through to slice knife. Or if well, I've got that wrong, no, 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 no I, I quite like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, the midfield has been open, and then we tried that in the victory against Nottingham Forest as well, and. It just and then the defeat to Tottenham as well at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, and to to be honest, although we started well on that front in that game, eventually we did lose, and there was too many gaps in that midfield where Mount was playing because Casemiro didn't really have the legs to facilitate 
mount pressing almost. So when mount was pressing, it left us very vulnerable, really, when teams almost counterattacked against us. And I think that's been the problem, really, because Ten Hag, I think, brought Mason Mount in as a, to be a number eight. But I think from what we've seen is that he definitely... I mean, Chelsea fans may disagree with this because a lot of Chelsea fans have come back to me and said that Mount does perform better in that number eight role. But from what I've seen of him at United, he likes to play in those advanced positions a lot more, almost similar to what Ericsson gives in that Ericsson does drift a lot in the forward areas. But for some reason, there's almost there does feel like there's a bit more balance, really, when Ericsson plays with Casemiro. And it shouldn't really be like that because Ericsson doesn't really have the, the same legs, really, as Mount does. But I think it's a consequence of Mount's pressing, really, why it hasn't really worked out. And that balance, really, between with Casemiro and Mount just hasn't worked yet. I still think there is a player in Mason Mount, um, but it's just about how you fit him into that midfield. And personally, I think at the moment, he fits more into that Bruno sort of Ericsson role, where you're, where you're more advanced, where you're doing more at the pitch rather than that number eight position it's next classic, to Casemiro. Classic United, isn't it? Yeah. Like seeing a good player who might not fit, but they kind of think, oh, we'll, we'll get him anyway and we'll work it out later. It's an opportunistic signing. Problems in United's midfields, less so in cities now that Rodri's back. They lost three of four uh, in his absence for suspension. But since his return, they beat Brighton 2-1 last weekend and Young Boys 3-1 in the Champions League in midweek. What do you make of City, John? When we all look for flaws, we want a title race here. Where are they at right now? It's hard, isn't it, with, with City because it feels as though every season at the beginning of the season we're asking the the, the question, is this the, the, the season where they finally end up losing? Um and what tends to happen is they've brought in a couple of new players and it takes Pep a little while to actually work out how to use them properly. And the big story this season has been him bringing in ball carriers. So Kovacic and um, Nunes as well from, from Wolves. And uh, at the moment, it hasn't really seemed like it, it, it has worked out. But what tends to happen is that Pep Peps and uh, by the end of the season will be wondering how they ever lost any games at the beginning of the season, no doubt. Um, I do think that this feels like maybe a slightly different moment, um, whether or not that's because we're still in that post-Holland arrival. And so he's, he's a more risky player and, and obviously Pep likes to, to go for control. And, and so I think that when you bring in a player like Holland, you're always wanting to try and get the balance between we've got one of the best goal scorers probably of all time in the box. Let's just get the ball to him and, and hope it works out versus actually we don't want to put ourselves at risk of, of being counted on. I think that is still a problem that Man City and Pep Guardiola are, are working on. On top of that, then they've brought in essentially a new set of midfielders who he's having to try and work out as well in a tactical sense. So if you are going to start using ball carrying as a, as a way of uh, causing teams problems, um, then you've got to find out your, your tactic for doing that. And so I think the, the, the agglomeration of both of those problems at the same time is probably what's making them look a little bit less like their usual selves. But yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, as I said, by the end of the season, we're, we're, we're wondering wherever those points were lost. Yeah, a slightly different city this season, um, including with Julian Alvarez, you know, really coming to the fore, uh, been a massive positive for them. Three of his four strikes this term have been the opening goal of the match. Uh, while all four have also been Man City's first goal in the game. Ruben, what have you made of uh, his start to the season? He's really starting to kick on. He's amazing, isn't he? Yeah, especially in the absence of De Bruyne in the kind of number 10 role, because I guess when he joined, or when Haaland joined, 
it was unclear where Alvarez was going to get his game time and, you know, despite his obvious quality. Um, and now, what is he, like 22? And he's won literally everything, including the World Cup and the Champions League. Um, and you don't do that if you're not brilliant. And, uh, yeah, he scored some brilliant goals this, this season. One in the Champions League where he took it round the keeper and kind of in with the same step just P-rolled it in. Um, so it, City are... I mean, not fortunate. Like their their brilliant recruitment has found them a player who can play as a nine in the absence of Holland if he's not available, or have the creativity to play as a ten, but not necessarily in the like maverick luxury player way. He's just very ruthlessly efficient at playing both both positions. Right, prediction time. I think we might get three similar results here. Um, Ruben, how many goals are Man City going to win by? Three. Three zero. Mm-hmm. Three nil. John. I'll go a bit closer. I'll say it'll be a one-goal victory to Manchester City, but they we will see Man United score. Okay, Omar head head says heart says I'm going to be optimistic and say two-one United. That was with a heart, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, <sighs> M- Maguire backstick. <laughs> yeah, backstick last minute. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, I've just got a weird feeling about Sunday. Just got a weird feeling. Excellent. Um, one United player we didn't discuss was Jaden Sancho with his ongoing feud with Eric Ten Hag, seeing him frozen out of the picture at the moment. If you'd like to hear all the latest info on that particular situation, check out Thursday's edition of the Athletic Football Podcast, where Laurie Whitwell and Carl Anker join Io Akinwaleri to break it all down. Next up for us, we're heading to West London. Right, so... Chelsea v Brentford Saturday 12:30 the hipsters derby says uh says the script I'm not sure about that um is, is it a hipsters derby I, I think mean, it's are... an actual derby isn't it yeah sort of yeah west london <laughs> <laughs> there's too many derbies in london right it can't can't all there go. are too many what 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 is a hipsters derby I'm looking I don't know who I'm looking at here for the, for the hipsters <laughs> choice hipster? but you know feel free to any what does that mean a derby that isn't a derby like just the derby that the a hipsters love a niche love. derby I guess like like river plate versus Boca or something yeah. Some, oh yeah I'm going to get up at one in the morning to watch mm. that because I'm a hipster El Gran Derby the Sevilla Betis that's quite mm. the one in Istanbul isn't there where it's uh, one team from from Europe and one team from Asia because they're different sides of the river. That's quite cool. And then the Tehran derby uh, is. Oh I yeah, think we're getting, we're getting nice and niche now. Yeah, that's uh, quite. I knew I was to rely on you for this. Yeah, um, I think that's quite exciting because they have a massive stadium. The Azadi Stadium is, is huge, and they fill that out. I think it's over a hundred thousand uh, potential capacity for that. So that's a, a big one. It's pretty cool. Lovely stuff. Um, before Brentford were promoted to the Premier League a couple of years ago, this fixture hadn't been played in the league for 74 years, but Brentford have certainly made up for lost time with two victories from two games at Stamford Bridge since promotion. We did speak a bit about Chelsea last week before their 2-2 draw against Arsenal, but it's worth revisiting with you here in particular, John, after you went on the record, apparently, <laughs> with Tifo this week. And you said, it's, it's quite outlandish, <laughs> but you said you think Chelsea are good. Yeah, on the on the running order here, it's got the quote "are good." Two words "are good," and I'm just wondering what the context of those words was because you know, there's plenty of uh, context where it could be different. But yeah, I was talking particularly about the game against Arsenal. I thought they were fantastic, particularly out of possession. I thought they really controlled Arsenal well. They they used a really compact four four two shape. Um, a lot of teams these days like to go player for player, and um, it was because they simply don't want the opposition to settle into their build up. Um, but actually, I thought with with Chelsea, it was they they did quite a good job because Arsenal 
try and use uh, a lot of flexibility in their build-up in order to pull around the opposition defensive structure and open space that they can then exploit. Whereas Chelsea were using a little, little bit more of a, a zonal system, which was well, it's, it's one that I call a, an option-oriented zonal system because you stay in your zone. If someone comes in, you go quite tight to them, but you don't get pulled out of your zone if they move out of your zone then. So the idea being that you're not actually going to be able to be pulled pulled apart and it caused a, a lot of problems. And on top of that, I thought they were really good in, in possession uh, as we've already said, teams like to press quite aggressively and high. Arsenal are a team like that. But Chelsea, I thought, found really nice ways of just being able to attack quite directly in diagonal lines to sort of attack the space that opens out when you commit quite high. So, yeah, I thought that this was a really nice um, approach by, by Chelsea and was the, the first real inkling I thought we think we've had that, you know, Chelsea could be quite good against the good sides. But the question I have is, like, how good are they going to be against the sides that they have to be? Um, those are very different um, uh, situations entirely. And as we've said with Manchester United, you know, going into games as underdogs suits them. Uh, the big question with, with Chelsea now, I think, is like how many of those games where they're expected to win are they going to win comfortably? And that's where, you know, the really good teams really stand out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they should they should have won that game, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they were, And yeah, the 4-4-2 the that they played, I remember seeing the lineup and thinking, is that's going to be, that's going to be Sterling through the middle with kind of Gallagher in this weird kind of defensive 10 position. Um, didn't expect to see Gallagher and Palmer play together through the middle, but they did it really well. Um, and I was especially impressed with impressed with Cole Palmer, who I think because he looks young and he came through at City and therefore didn't get that much game time, I still think of as like this kind of 17-year-old who um, is just a, you know, a kid who might be good one day. And now he's, I'm like, oh no, he's legitimately already very, very good. Um, so they seem to have got a very good, accidentally got a brilliant signing there because it seemed like a bit of an opportunistic one. Um, but yeah, Chelsea have been playing better than their results suggest, but that still doesn't necessarily mean that they'll finish where they should this season because the top half of the Premier League is so stacked with brilliant teams. Like, you know, everybody mentions, you know, Villa and Brighton for, with good reason. Um, so, you know, they could they could get back to playing quote-unquote well with you know, all the underlying numbers pointing upwards, you know, but they could still quite easily finish ninth or 10th. Mm -hmm. That's just the way the Premier League is at the moment. What have you made of Pochettino's start at Chelsea, Omar? I mean, I've always been a big fan of Pochettino, you know, the high-pressing intensity game. Um, Chelsea have impressed me this season. I think the reason why they have been struggling, and we may get into this a bit later, I just think the lack of striker is a big problem for them. Christopher Nkunku, I knew him pre-season, he looked quite good, didn't he? I think he scored about three, three goals or something in pre-season for them. And then he obviously got that unfortunate injury. And I just think, I've seen Chelsea's build-up play in their midfield, and it's been really good. It's been high-intensity, fast-paced, what you'd expect, really, from a Pochettino side. Um, and I know they tried the three at the back at the start of the season, then they obviously moved to the 4-4, almost like a 4-4-2 against Arsenal. Um, and I just think... They create enough chances, but they just don't have that clinical edge in the final third, which I think has been the biggest problem for them. And it was a problem for them last season. And it's amazing to think that they've spent almost a billion pounds and they just don't seem to have... It's kind of been a, a problem for them point. since Diego Costa left, yeah, hasn't yeah, it, really? Yeah. Like, the amount of time that Havertz spent playing as a nine when clearly it wasn't his best position yeah. um, is, is incredible. I mean, he hasn't retired yet. Who? Diego Costa. Where is he now? He's, 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 uh, he's gone back Wolves. to Brazil now. All right, yeah. Best place for him, I think. <laughs> um, uh, Brentford visit Stamford Bridge on Saturday. We had Jay Harris 
on last week's podcast um, talking about the possibility or otherwise of Ivan Tony joining Arsenal in uh, in January. Chelsea writer Liam Toomey has written a piece on a potential swoop for Tony uh, this week. There's uh, previously in Charlie Eccleshare talk him up as a potential spur signing in January. It does feel like there's going to be a bit of a tug of war for Ivan Tony. Where where's he going to go, Omar? I've got, a, I've got a funny feeling that he might go to Arsenal, to be honest with you. I just think they kind of need that second strike. I know they've got Gabriel Jesus and Eddie Nketiah, but Jesus has had a few injury problems as well, and it seems like they need that extra person, really, because they're going for the title as well. And Ivan Tony has made it very clear, I think, previously, that Arsenal would be a club that he might be interested in pursuing in the journey transfer window. He's clearly at that point now where he wants to make that step up, right? And... Um, I mean, what he's done at Brentford has been absolutely brilliant. Um, and I think he's a top-class player. And I think he'd fit into any top side, really, be it Spurs, be it Chelsea. There's a lot of clubs at the moment that need a striker. I think it just depends on will those clubs facilitate the funds to buy Tony in January because he's going to cost an awful lot of money. And he, well, and he won't have played football for ages. Yeah, so. yeah. Ex- exactly. But the, the clubs that we're talking about here, they've obviously got an awful lot of money that they can spend. There's a potential real bidding war for Tony. Um, where would you like to see him end up? Leeds. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, all clubs want to have uh, players who can finish consistently. Uh, and especially when you have a player like Ivan Tony, who you know can finish consistently in the Premier League for a, a club like Brentford, who you don't necessarily as- associate with being elite. So I think every elite team is going to look at that and say, you know, okay, this guy's coming potentially towards the end of his peak at least um, per age. But at the moment, if we don't have a str- Arsenal, great example of that, right? Arsenal struggling to build up centrally, so not causing scoring quite so many goals as they have in the past where they get in behind uh, and you don't need a, a sort of quote-unquote classic number nine. You can use a false nine and it, and it works out all right. This season, they're having to go down in, into build up in wide areas because they're not being able to get that central penetration. And then they end up with these scenarios where they are just you know lumping in the, box, the ball into the box to, to players who aren't necessarily going to do much with it put someone like Ivan Tony in, in that scenario and it makes a huge difference to you. Even if you're only using him last five, 15 minutes in games when you run out of other ideas. So yeah, I think, I mean, Arsenal makes a, a huge amount of sense in that respect. Excellent. Right, next up, we're going to turn our attention to a big game at the bottom of the table. Saturday, 3pm. It's a grim basement battle between Bournemouth and Burnley, stick with us, listeners. We're gonna we're gonna get into the nuts and bolts of this one. Um, it is a six pointer. You know, we're pretty much a quarter of the way through the season now. Bournemouth still haven't won a game yet, unbelievably. Burnley have won one, which was at Luton. So I guess logic dictates, you know, after ten games, if you've only won one or zero games, manager's going to be under some serious pressure. Albeit Iriola more so than Vincent Company, who's obviously got quite a lot of credit in the bank. Iriola John, whose position has probably been weakened by an appearance on Monday Night Football uh, of Gary O'Neill, who, who turned up on the show this week to uh, reveal his tactical masterclass as to how Wolves beat uh, his former club Bournemouth last week. Um, I mean, you've been a fan of this guy's work in the past. W- what's going wrong? Yeah, my uh, Twitter mentions have been fun this week. I'll, <laughs> I'll give you that. But um, I, I was always a big fan of, of Iraola when he was at Rio Vallecano in La Liga. Um, I was a big fan of their out of possession stuff in particular because he developed this this really aggressive way of pressing uh, that also had a kind of safety buffers to make sure that you didn't get completely turned over by by bigger teams so you could cause 
team's real problems in their build-up. And if your press got broken, there was they had all of these systems to fall back into a lower block, which was a little bit more zonal, so it was a lot more um, safe. And they got results against uh, Real Madrid, Barcelona, big te- big teams who you might not expect a, a team of, of Rio's budget to, to be able to even compete with. So I've always been a big fan of, of the out-of-possession stuff. Um, when he went to Bournemouth, I was a little bit nervous that uh, that things might not necessarily go well for a number of reasons. One is that, you, you know, it takes time for you to be able to teach that kind of way of, of pressing, um, particularly aggressive out of possession stuff, especially at a team like Bournemouth who hadn't been playing that way in recent recent seasons. So there's questions about whether or not the squad fit was going to be uh, great. But yeah, the other one was that you looked at their opening schedule and they had a really rough schedule. And then they had this almost oasis p- period of fixtures where they had three fixtures in a row against uh, Everton, against Wolves, and then now against Burnley. Um, and for the first uh, few fixtures, I think the first seven or so, those tough fixtures, they, they played all right. They, they were competing. They got draws against West Ham, who were winning everything at that time. They got a draw with Chelsea, and they got a late draw um, with, with Brentford, where Brentford equalised in, in injury time. And you, you, you kind of think, you know, even if, that, even if that win comes through at Brentford, um, this might be a very different situation. But because of that tough run, it meant they went into this oasis period of fixtures with quite a lot of pressure on the team. And the way that it's played out is that they've actually not dealt with that pressure particularly well in terms of individual moments. It's one of those ones where part of me wants to be like, you know, they've not been as bad as, as everyone thinks, but you look at the, the ta- league table and you're like, there's no, there's just simply no points there to back it up. So it's it's a funny one. I think it, it's it, it's a shame that things haven't worked out for him, but it's looking very hard for him to sort of climb out the hole that, that his team have dug in themselves in. Yeah, there's going to be um, pressure on the losing manager here, but it is unusual that we haven't seen a sacking yet so far. We're going to be 10 games in after this one. Ruben, we'll start with you. Who's most under pressure? Well, maybe Hecking bottom, I guess. Like they are Sheffield United at bottom of the league with eight losses and one point. That's not very good. But like generally, it's difficult to think of anyone who is under real pressure of getting sacked this weekend other than Iriola because obviously as John explained there's lots of risks and investments in ideas attached to that whereas with the other teams it's it feels like the promoted sides especially have kind of accepted that not doing uh, do we still call it doing a Fulham when you get promoted and spend 100 million pounds on 10 players like not doing that is more sensible than doing it because going up Getting uh, not spending beyond your means, getting relegated, taking the parachute payments, go, building a better team, going again is almost the um, the the preferred method now, the preferred strategy of those teams that are kind of between the two divisions or potentially yo-yo teams. So, like if Luton go down, they're not going to sack their manager. If Burnley go down, they're not going to sack their manager. Everton, like you know, they've got a million different things going on that uh, that makes Sean Dyche's job very difficult, but he's still kind of doing about par I would say so I I, I honestly think it's pro- probably hacking bottom because if nobody wants to lose every single week like if it looks like they might get fewer points than Derby in 0708 then something that's got to change Omar what do you think I mean you could even say Pochettino a few weeks ago Ten Hag a few weeks ago but there's no one really in the foreign line at the moment no I, I think Everton is one that does concern me a little bit just because Sean Dyche succeeding Frank Lampard that wasn't really inspirational in my opinion I know Sean Dyche did wonders at Burnley um, but I think what Everton fans want is like they want attacking football they see themselves as like a very big club Um, and for a club of that that stature they should be nowhere near 
the relegation battle, in my opinion. They'd be, I think they're the only side in English football that haven't been relegated from the top flight. Um, off the top, them and Arsenal, them and Arsenal, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I, I think, I think he will stay. Obviously, Sean Dyche, but I just think there is something there. But then, I also look at the other side of it. If you sack someone, who else are you going to bring in? There's not really many managerial options out there available at the moment, especially for the so-called like lower size in the Premier League. Um, so I think that's an issue. And then also... I think Pardew's knocking about. Pardew, yeah. yeah. Well, as, Frank as, Lampard. As, as a taxi driver I had last week said, uh, Big Sam could get that Man United job. Get <laughs> he was being serious. <laughs> but I also think as well, I think last season almost proved that sacking a manager midway through the season doesn't always work. Chelsea, for example, they sat Graham Potter. They didn't really recuperate from that. Tottenham, when Antonio Conte left, they didn't really recuperate from that either. Um, and there is the benefit of stability. For example, I know there was a lot of talk about Steve Cooper losing his job last season at Nottingham Forest, but he managed to keep them up in the Premier League. Um, so I think you have to weigh in all those factors when you are considering a managerial change. And you know, recent times have shown that it doesn't always work. So maybe that's one of the factors into why there hasn't been many managerial seconds this West, season. West Ham as well, they've been under, well, like there's been a lot of scrutiny on David Moyes at yeah. different times and they've yeah. stuck by him through a few difficult patches and that's kind of paid off. And it seemed like the only decision to sack a manager that made sense and the team drastically improved last season was when Palace sacked Vieira and brought Roy Hodgson back. I feel as though we need to defend, I need to defend Sean Dyche here because I feel as though he's doing a really good job at, at Everton. Because um, they're broken have bad players. Yeah, and the, yeah. again, not that the like underlying Michael numbers are, are worth <laughs> everything, but their underlying numbers are really good. They're, they're putting up very good attacking numbers and, uh, you know, the, the impression people have of Sean Dyche teams is they sit deep and, and don't attack, whereas that's very much been the opposite way around this this season. They've been a very attacking team who, who've maybe been a bit more open than we might have expected them. And I think they're definitely putting up the numbers that in the long long run they should be fine the only worry they have is was potential points deduction so i think they'll, they'll be okay excellent right good stuff team uh before we head off any other games other than the ones we've highlighted other than bournemouth burnley that we're really looking forward to this weekend well there's a classico this weekend isn't there yeah. yes there is yeah. yeah which apparently we can't, can't watch. watch it though no didn't no. want to i know never mind <laughs> Next. um Good stuff. Uh, right, that's all for today. Thanks very much, team. Io will be back on Monday, while Adam will be back at it next week with another weekend preview on Friday. Sign up to The Athletic for just $1.99 a month for an entire year at theathletic.com slash footballpod. Thanks for listening. See you next week. The Athletic.